0: Welcome to the long run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is John Wilbanks. He's the Chief Commons Officer of Sage Bionetworks. Sage is a nonprofit biomedical research organization founded in Seattle in 2009 by a couple of veterans from Merck. Back then, Co-founders Stephen Friend and Eric Schott recognized that no single company's R&D labs, no matter how smart and well-funded, have the same kind of capability as the crowd. So Sage seeks to promote innovations in personalized medicine by enabling what it calls a community-based approach to scientific inquiries and discoveries. As Wilbanks likes to say, he likes making it easy to share things. Now This is easier said than done. Sage's mission goes against the grain of the standard business model in both academic science and the biopharmaceutical industry. The questions that Wilbanks wrestles with every day are of crucial importance to anyone who cares about how science gets done, how quickly progress gets made, how people get rewarded for advancing a field. This conversation is a look at some big picture ideas that are relevant to everyone in the biomedical research enterprise. I think you'll enjoy it. Okay, now for a few plugs. Life Science Cares is a collective effort of the life science industry to end poverty in the greater Boston area. Now working with more than 150 companies, Life Science Cares harnesses the industry's human and financial resources to support service organizations doing the very best work in the areas of basic human survival, education, and economic sustainability. To learn more about how your organization become a member or how you can volunteer, visit www.lifesciencecares.org. You may also want to listen to an earlier long-run podcast that I did with Life Science Cares founder, Rob Perez, to hear him describe the mission of this group. Also, if you enjoy listening to these in-depth interviews, you'll love reading Timmerman Report. You can subscribe to Timmerman Report for $149 a year per person. Group subscriptions, which include an internal sharing license, are available at a discount. For details, ask me at luke.timmerman at protonmail.com. Now, join me and John Wilbanks for the long run. So with me today is uh, John Wilbanks. He's the Chief Commons Officer of Sage Bionetworks. We're sitting here in Seattle, not too far from the Space Needle, at some new digs uh, Sage has. Uh, Welcome. Thanks for joining me on the show today, John. Thanks for having me. So um, let's start from the very beginning. Uh, Commons Officer at Sage Bionetworks. Just real quick, what
1: do you do? Um, The short version is I try to make it easy to share things.
0: Well, that sounds nice. Um, Sometimes <laughs> harder to do, easy to say, hard to do.
1: Yeah, that's that's the idea. the The long version is that um, we try to apply a lot of the ideas that Eleanor Ostrom laid out in her career as a Nobel winning um, economist about how re- resource systems uh, operate, um, how things get shared, how communities work together. Um, and how these sort of commons-based uh, resources and common, common pool resources um, can lead to more innovative ecosystems. And she did this work in the natural world, but we see a lot of analogs to it in the digital world, especially in the science world, because uh, in the same way that ecosystems have to lead to crops coming out, right? Um, science knowledge systems have to lead to knowledge coming out. And so uh, my job is to try to uh, build a group and uh, help that group um, move towards you know, being able to bring data in, uh, either from scientists or directly from non-scientists, you know, study participants and so forth, uh, and then ways to share that data back out to scientific communities so that they can use it to generate new knowledge.
0: Okay, this is really hard stuff for us in biomedicine, healthcare. We don't like to share data. All of the incentives are pointing the other direction. Uh, so this is a real uphill battle. Let's get into, uh, we'll get into more of the specifics of what, uh, how you're going about this later, but I want to peel it all the way back to the very beginning, a little bit about yourself and who you are and where you come from.
1: So where where did you grow up? I, I grew up an academic brat. Uh, so I was born in upstate New York, and we moved to uh, the former Yugoslavia for a while and then settled in East Tennessee, which is where I went you know, from kindergarten all through high school and where my family still is. Uh, my dad was a climate scientist at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory. Uh, so I grew up around, uh, around scientists, and you know, but mainly physicists and, and climate scientists. And uh, my dad specialized in sustainable development before it was really a phrase, and uh, and so I also grew up being his library rat. I would you know he didn't really love the library at the lab, so I would go with him to the library at the University of Tennessee and learned how to locate information. It's where I got exposed to connected digital systems, and uh, um, and then from there I went to college in Tulane in New Orleans, uh, studied philosophy with a year in France studying French at the Sorbonne, um, and uh, yeah, that's where I come from more or less. Why philosophy? I started out in molecular biology, but I really hated, uh, my teacher <laughs> and, and for, and I, I had applied to college as a science major. And, um, when, when I got to Tulane, I, you had to take balanced course loads. And so my freshman year, first semester, I took a, an intro to philosophy course and, uh, I had a great teacher, professor Thomas and, um, Something about it just really called me. I really enjoyed it way more than, you know, biology at that point was really taught as a memorization exercise. And then I had this philosophy course, which was a thinking exercise. And that was just more fun. And so, uh, you know, Tulane's in New Orleans. And so during Mardi Gras, my freshman year, I walked into the dean's office on a whim and changed my major.
0: Now this was early '90s, so biology, '90 to '94, yeah. Biology, 90
1: 94, yeah.
0: biology uh, I guess people may have been talking about the Human Genome Project, but not really. I mean, it wasn't. But biology was more of a rote memorization right. kind of area. It wasn't like the hot thing. That's to right. Be, to be studying.
1: That's right. It was. It was sort of the. It was sort of the closing of the window of the time before computing and sequencing. Um, it hit culture, much less science. Right? I mean, I had to. I had an email address, but I had to walk to the computer lab to use it. You know, uh, I remember getting an ATM card for the first time during my sophomore year. Right, and so uh, the idea that biology would be computational was not part of the curriculum. Shall we say?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Did you develop a, a crush on a favorite philosopher?
1: Oh, uh, I liked John Dewey a lot, um, and sort of the, 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 the early 1900s humanists really spoke to me a lot. But what I really liked were the ancient Greeks, like the pre-Socratics, you know, Anaximander and, and some of the others, because it was almost like reading poetry. Um, and I was really interested in the fact that philosophy changed radically when the Greeks and the Egyptians got together and math entered Greece, right? Um, but that's more of a history play than a philosophy play. Uh, it turned out I didn't really like doing philosophy. I enjoyed sort of the practice of reading philosophy and talking about it, uh, which is why I didn't wind up going to graduate school.
0: Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You did uh, end up going to Capitol Hill, yeah. right? Working yeah. for uh, Pete Stark. Yep. Huh. Uh, I wound up that. It took me about a year and a half after I
1: got to D.C. to get to the Hill. I uh, uh, So I had been a cook in New Orleans. I'd been a tennis pro during the summers. Um, during college and uh, you know, you you know, it's like everyone's what are you going to do when you graduate? And I had no answer. Like Everyone else I knew seemed to have an internship somewhere and they'd had summer experiences and I had been off having fun and you know, boiling crawfish in a blues club.
0: Um, Companies don't exactly come to campus to recruit philosophy majors.
1: (laughs) Who have been cooks, right? Like it's the stereotype is, yeah, you know, uh, the, the old joke is what does a philosophy major say after graduation? It's do you want fries with that? Right? And, um, and so I got tired of answering the what are you going to do when you uh, graduate question. I just started saying I'm going to go to D.C. I had a, I had one of my old friends live there. He was graduating from Georgetown. Uh, so I knew I could crash. We, we graduated faster than they did. So I knew that I could crash for a couple of weeks there. And uh, I, I sort of had this faith that I could grind out a job because of the turnover in D.C. Because D.C. is a very – seasonal town as you know, elections change. And this is 1994. I'm a Democrat from the South. There were a lot of Southern Democrats in the summer of 94. It was the summer of health care under Clinton. And, uh, uh, and so I kind of thought that I would be able to hook on pretty quickly if I went there. And so I went to D.C. and I made, I think, 350 or so phone calls to campaign offices and nonprofits in the, in the white pages of the actual phone book. And uh, got an internship for Ted Kennedy's campaign against Mitt Romney. Worked there for several weeks um, and got a job at the Democratic National Committee. And on my third day, I was laid off. Um, it was right – it was, you know – and this was the – all of the dysfunction that led to the Republican takeover in 94. That wave was hitting the DNC in the summer. And so I got hired and laid off in a three-day period as, as, as part of that dysfunction. And so I scuffled for a while and I got a job answering the phones at the Political Action Committee for the Physical Therapy Association. And uh, while I was there, I got exposed to the Stark I and Stark II, Medicare reimbursement laws, some of the work that was going on around um, in healthcare policy. And we worked a lot with Pete Stark's office because he believed in using physical therapy and occupational therapy to lower Medicare and Medicaid costs and extend Medicare and Medicaid to more populations. And uh, when an opening came up for a sort of an outfielder legislative assistant, you know, I applied for it and got it.
0: Huh. Now, what was the big takeaway from that experience? Because it seems to be an important one for you.
1: Um, I learned a lot about the way Congress actually works. I mean, I was only there for a year and a half or so. Um, it was a hard job, Um but the biggest thing for me is that there was a web server and a constituent mail server. There was a web server at the Physical Therapy Association, which was my first exposure to the World Wide Web. It was the first web page I ever wrote. Um, although I don't think it ever made it to the internet, but it was the first time I ever wrote an HTML. And then when I was working for Pete, a um, you know, constituent mail server would go down, and you know, there was, there was one woman who could fix it, and she taught me how to fix it. And so suddenly I knew a little bit about databases and mail merges. Um, and then I worked. Uh, I built more web pages during that time period. I got my first internet account. And so for me, it was there was this incredible, you know, intense one-year graduate program in the reality of federal policymaking, uh, but also it was really my first exposure to creating things with technology.
0: Uh huh. So this is the this is the mid '90s. Internet is starting to gain steam, uh, but we're not yet in the the full-blown .dot com Right. Boom. I still had to
1: use Winsock, if you remember Winsock. Uh, No, I don't. (laughs) Yeah. It was – that's the the thing you had to have on your computer to connect to the internet in the early days, right? If you wanted to run your own domain, you had to set up a zone file, right? There were no sort of registrars and ISPs the way that we think about them. I mean, I helped Congressman Stark get a web page up for his campaign. I did this, you know, on the weekend as a volunteer, as one does. And uh, the, the ISP was called Hermes, Right. And when he first saw the charge, he was convinced I had gone to Hermes and bought a scarf for my girlfriend because right? <laughs> he didn't know what the letters ISP meant
0: uh-huh. after that. Uh-huh. Yeah. So we're, we're talking way back here. Yeah. Now- uh, This is like
1: right around the Netscape IPO. Like I remember the first time I saw the Netscape browser and that was probably when I was at the Physical Therapy Association.
0: Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So that's, you know, it's starting to, you know, capture some popular attention, Um you you got interested. You went. Now uh, I don't want to walk through your whole resume, but I do. I did see that you went to the Berkman Center for uh, the Internet and Society at Harvard. Uh, this would have been during that dot com period, late nineties yeah. to early two thousand. Yeah.
1: So ninety seven is when I left the I left the Hill and moved to Boston. Fell in love with a girl, and uh, and so for the first year I was up there, I actually was consulting for a a, a, a company called Phonics Pen Voice Interaction. So this was, you know, I was in the stacks at the MIT libraries, which were open. They didn't require an ID. And I was researching all sorts of computer-human interaction um, theories around using voice commands, pen commands, early clamshell tablets. And, uh, and that was a lot of fun. But then they opened an office, and the office was up in Woburn. And I don't know if you know Boston, but I, yeah. went, from, I went from working at home in, in Somerville and going to MIT to like a three-bus connection up to Woburn. And um, and so I didn't like that very much. I was having to do a lot of um, networking, like, you know, hand cabling, Ethernet cables and RJ45 connectors. And So there's this annual thing called the Big Help in Boston, which is a big, fat newspaper full of job ads, or it was in the late 90s, right? Mm-hmm. And I saw this ad for the Berkman Center. Um, and they were looking for someone that appeared to have either a PhD or a JD or both and had run a university. Uh, For for an assistant director ad, and I was like, well, you know, I'm going to throw out 100 resumes. I'll throw in 101, and um, but I realized that you could apply by email, and so uh, I did already. I had internet at home, which was not that normal. I had a computer at home, which was not that sort of normal at that point. And I think that's what got my resume up to the, to the pile, because uh, I was like 25.
0: Young guy who's like a little more tech savvy than the average bear.
1: It has some policy background, right? Coming uh-huh. off of the hill, a little, little bit of policy, a little bit of tech, you know, showing a little bit of, of, of system hacking to, to track down an email and send it. And so I was fortunate, right? They, 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 they took a look at my resume and, um, you know, Jonathan Zittrain and Charlie Nesson were, uh, were willing to take a flyer on me.
0: And what did you learn there?
1: A lot of admin stuff, a lot of managing stuff. So the as the assistant director, I didn't have a lot of policy uh, sway, nor did I deserve it, right? I was you know walking in off the street, and these are Harvard professors. But um, you know, so they wanted me to do things like get the budget in line, and so I had to learn how to deal with the dean of finance at Harvard Law School, who would say things like, "Why are you running on actuals instead of a budget?" Right? Uh, And because it was the dot com boom, the endowment units kept doubling every year, and so the the cash kept looking like it wasn't going down but that was because the endowment kept doubling and we were still spending right Mm -hmm. and so I learned how to start thinking about fundraising and development Um, you know we hired a bunch of of law students and undergraduate students many of them are very famous now and so I learned how to you know keep their pay sheets in line and you know we had OSHA violations because we had law students sleeping in the hallways because they were writing code at night uh, while they were going to school during the day and I had to learn how to deal with things like that Um, And so that was sort of the that was the blocking and tackling of my job, right? Um, Learned a lot about things like video casting and real time chat because we were broadcasting the ICANN meetings from wherever they were in the world, Um, and I got to work on that, which was great. Um, And then at the higher level, I got to sort of be in the room when insanely smart people were working on really core internet policy issues, like handing over the domain name system, right, to ICANN or um, you know, some early questions, deep questions about copyright, intellectual property, and the internet. And so I sort of, through osmosis, I started to pick up some of the policy issues while I was there. But most of what I did was really, you know, you know you're the manager.
0: Uh-huh. And uh, did you look around in the thick at any point, gee, why are all these other people getting rich?
1: <laughs> you know, I didn't know that many of the people. Uh, so I didn't have a lot of friends who were doing tech. Um, and so I didn't know a lot of the people getting IPOs, right? That was, I think that was more Silicon Valley. Yeah. Um, and what I did see is that my girlfriend was a scientist and so, and she worked at a company that got bought by millennium. So she worked at Lucasite, which then got bought by millennium. It's yeah. so like, I remember going to the millennium holiday party in maybe 98, 98 going into 99 and then you had know, champagne fountains and Gladys Knight and the pips. And you know, it was crazy uh, and I remember thinking, I just can't believe how much money is sloshing around, but it wasn't you know I can't why are these people getting rich? It's just I didn't see that many of those people. Um, you know, I was kind of lucky in that all the really good technology people already had jobs and so they were hiring people who could learn technology, and that was me um, but you know you said that Boston wasn't quite that way, okay, so
0: how did these these this bundling of interests, I can see things are coming together for you now at this point. How did it morph into life sciences, genomics?
1: Well, one of the guys that I, who was one of the law students at, at HLS, Antoon Nabhan, um, was a good friend of mine, still is, uh, and... He spent a summer out in Silicon Valley uh, doing one of these summer associateships, and came back having seen, right, the the VC land and the froth, and um, and I had been hanging out at the labs at leukocyte and sort of asking questions like, "What's that? That's a flow-assisted cell sorter. What's that? That's it's an Affymetrix microarray machine." And the the Affy microarray machines, right, the gene expression stuff, fascinated me because I'd had just enough biology to sort of understand what was going on. Uh-huh. But the idea that you would have these light brights that would show you if genes were up or down and how much and uh, was really interesting to me. And, and I had because of the stuff at Phonics, I'd done a little bit of work on acoustic algorithms, noise de- noise uh, defeating systems because you have to figure out like we're talking what are the words and what's the street noise from you know Belltown in Seattle. And so I, you know, was hanging out and I would ask people, like, how do you analyze that data? And they were using algorithms that looked a lot like the algorithms we had used to do voice recognition. And one of the problems I had mentally with voice recognition was that it was not semantic, right? You were just sort of doing, you know, statistical recognition. And my senior thesis in philosophy was on epistemology and semantics. And so I'd said things like, you know, don't genes do stuff? Don't you want to sort of account for what the gene does when you analyze the microarray? And they'd be like, yeah, we don't know how to do that. And so I'd been sort of playing around with what would it look like if you had semantic representation for what the genes did that you added to the statistical representations to do microarray analysis. And um, you know, Antoon came back, we would hang out, right? We would drink coffee, we would drink beer, we would eat sushi, and before I knew it, we'd written a business plan and you know, one of the people who sat in the hallway said, hey, you should talk to my dad. He's an investor. And the next thing you know, like it being the late 90s, like literally, th- this is the thing about sort of privilege and, and systems is if you're sitting at Harvard and you have that kind of idea, like you can just be kind of talking bullshit and someone will show up and give you a check, right? And it's and I don't want to exaggerate it, but it wasn't that far, right? I had like three meetings and suddenly I was the CEO of a startup company.
0: You now it's like. Okay, I really got to do something. Yeah, it's oh shit, right? <laughs> like, um,
1: and, uh, and so so we, we, we started a company built around the idea that you could use, you could add add in semantics to represent the knowledge and make the knowledge computationally interoperable, and that you could use that to do uh, array data interpretation. And right around the time we started, and we got you know uh, about a, three quarters of a million dollars in, a, in an angel round. And right around the time that we were on the edge of getting to market, like five or six open source software packages for ray analysis flooded the market. And so we pivoted, we, we sort of focused on the semantic aspects, uh, realized pretty quickly that um, it didn't matter how good your knowledge architecture was, there wasn't enough knowledge to architect to, to have anything successful, right? It's, it's an echo of what we'll talk about for today, which is that the biological complexity is so vast that even really good knowledge architecture just illustrates how little you know. And so we started using the tech for database integration back end sort of knowledge management, which is what worked, right? So we had some good tech for synonym disambiguation. Say you know, P53 has you know, more than 90 synonyms, or it did then. Uh, and you'd have files attached or knowledge attached to each synonym, but you would, one query wouldn't resolve them all. And so we sold that to biotech and pharma companies and
0: You could sell it because there was no free open source alternative.
1: Right. There was no free open source alternative. And we were actually building this all out of open data. We were building off the NCBI databases. What we would do is take them and then basically integrate them all into one big semantic graph. Right. And this is in, like, 03. This is way before there was graph stuff available from Amazon or or anybody. So we had to build our own grid in a closet about the size of the room that we're sitting in now. And that grid had to run for 25 consecutive days to build the graph. Sure. Uh, we only built it a few times, I think, over three years. Um, and, uh, but what it was good for was back end, right? It would, it would let you sort of query one synonym and get all the data related to all of the synonyms. And that was the utility that it had. But, uh, you know, this is, you know, by 2002, this is what we're doing. And uh, by 2003, like, half of our customer pipeline is going out of business,
0: that was a uh, a down swing Yeah, in, yeah. In the and it was a yeah, so, so post-genomics hangover was was exactly. uh, was going on. Then right. people said, "Wait a minute! We were supposed to get cures magically. Now that we've got the human genome sequenced, where are all the cures?" Well, this is a pattern. Yes. This is
1: a pattern we're going to see, right? And uh, so, yeah, the customer pipeline started to dry up, um, even though we were having success. And so, our, our investors. You know uh, had gotten in our, our our profession our venture investors had gotten in because they they the idea was that bioinformatics would get you biotech returns at software prices and uh, once that became evident that it wasn't going to be true that the vendors to biotech were having a worse crash than biotech yeah um, and so they uh, they they started putting us up for sale and we wound up merging with another small company called Genstruct up in Boston um. Which did sort of small world modeling? You would take a bunch of observed molecular changes and then use the literature and the data to to annotate it, and um, and then you would say, what are the most plausible explanations for the changes based on the small world of knowledge? Um, and so yeah, we, we we sold it to them. We didn't make any money, uh, but we had sort of an honorable exit, um, and, I'm, and uh, I and spent a year there with 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 those guys, um, and uh, and and I just. Kind of figured out that I was probably not meant to be a startup entrepreneur. Um, Why is that? It's a hard job, and it's hard to raise money and spend money and build value. It's even harder to get the check back with another zero on it. And there's just there's a certain piece of that that just didn't really appeal to me. Um, I loved a lot of the things about it, but I, I didn't like, you know. Honestly, the privatization of it was hard for me because it's not my instinct. I sort of, you know, there's a reason I went into government and there's a reason I've worked in nonprofit and academia so much. And although it was a a great experience, um, the entrepreneurs who wind up making money for their investors have a degree of obsession with returning value that just wasn't there for me. Uh Uh You know, I wanted to create value, but the, the obsession with capturing value is what distinguishes a lot of the really successful entrepreneurs from the less successful.
0: Yeah, yeah, journalists uh, can relate. Yeah. <laughs> Creating value, capturing it is the harder part. <laughs> yeah, and you've got to be <laughs> obsessed with capturing it because
1: the the good ones capture almost all of it.
0: Yes, yes. So you decide you want to create value, and you become an open source guy. Yeah. At, 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 uh, was this when you went to Creative Commons?
1: Well, I spent sort of a year between that at the Web Consortium uh, working on the Semantic Web team for Tim Berners-Lee uh, helping start the Semantic Web for Life Sciences project. So there's you know, Eric Newman, um, who had actually, when he was at Beyond Genomics, was my was my first customer at my company. And and he was helping get this off the ground. Andy Palmer, who was at um, <clears throat> Infinity Pharmaceuticals. Eric Miller at the Web Consortium, Danny Weitzner. You know, they were looking around and saying, you know, if, if this works from a knowledge management perspective on the back end for pharma and life sciences, maybe this is a place to get new members into the World Wide Web Consortium to care about the web. And it was the early days of Semantic Web when everyone thought it was going to sort of, you know, be everybody's new bicycle. And so I spent a year there sort of helping recruit some uh, companies to come to workshops, helping stand up a working group. Um, and, uh, and during that was when Creative Commons uh, decided they wanted to start a science project, found some money. And I knew everybody from, because you know, Creative Commons has started at Berkman. Right around the time I was leaving Berkman was when um, the, the Eldred versus uh, Reno decision, Eldred versus Ashcroft decision came down. Um, and, and Creative Commons was sort of born out of the ashes of that Supreme Court decision. And uh, so I knew a lot of the people involved. I, I knew them on a personal level, I knew them on a professional level. And, uh, and it was just a really fun opportunity to go back and work with people who I loved. And, uh, and work on something that seemed like it took what I had been doing but let me do it in a business model that made me feel better and was more fun.
0: And what was the business model?
1: Nonprofit, right? It was nonprofit advocacy, really. But you know, Creative Commons is fundamentally a, uh, has, has always been a product organization, which is not traditional nonprofit. Right? They say, the traditional nonprofit would say, you should license your copyrights openly. And Creative Commons is like, here are licenses that you can use to do that. They are machine-readable. They are human-readable. And it was a really interesting – it was always fascinating to me the way that that worked. And so the idea that we could take that concept into the sciences and say, all right, like where are all the places where sharing might help? And so – and the original sort of grant was looking at patent thickets and patent licensing and patent pools, but also at things like biological materials – right? Databases, open access to the scientific literature. And so it just seemed like, you know, I had interacted with all of those things at my company, right? Except for the the actual biological materials, right? But we had dealt with patent thickets, right? We had dealt with trying to integrate, you know, the hundreds and hundreds of open databases and make them usable. Um, I had seen how easy it would be to privatize the integration layer, right? Because if you, you could imagine, if you had the open databases, but somebody privatized the integration layer and then patented it, you would really hamstring the utility of the open databases. Um, you know, we had been at the company that bought us. We had to. We had to. Uh, for every time we built one of these small world semantic models, we ran into paywalls for the literature. So I had seen firsthand all of the places where a good entrepreneur gets beaten back by the fact that the sort of the knowledge commons of the life sciences was badly structured. structured.
0: You run into other people's business models, which That's they right. will fight very hard to defend. That's right. So, so I was
1: really interested in the idea of, you know, so much of the life sciences knowledge space is pre-competitive because you, know, you make your money on the intervention, which is not knowledge. It's, you know, a physical thing, right? It's a drug, uh, you know, at that time a small molecule, right? Um, so, you know, it seemed like there was this room to run where you could say, well, maybe we can really rethink the whole sort of life science knowledge space as a common. And, um, and the org really gave me a lot of freedom to, to play around in that space. And so we built up this other wing of the org. We built it up in Boston. The org was in San Francisco. And you know, MIT gave us a home inside the computer science and AI lab.
0: Oh, so you were in Boston all this time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay.
1: Um, and so the, the project on math and computation at MIT's computer science lab gave us a home. And so this is where you know Richard Stallman lives to this day, is in that laboratory, um, a lot of you know it, it goes back to the '50s. It was this wonderful, like, intellectual lineage of computing and open source and um, and science, and so it was this incredible sort of place to hang out and work. And so we grew and we ran that for a while, and we actually recapitulated some of that database integration technology using open source semantic web approaches. We did a lot of work on being an advocate for open access to the literature, but mainly so that you could build search engines and do you know more accurate processing and text mining of the literature. Uh, we worked on we did a, a massive <laughs> project on materials transfer agreements that no one ever used. It was a great project, but like we ran straight into the incentive problem that no one was going to share what was in their fridge, right? Um we did a patent licensing project with Nike that you know erupted in sustainable sustainable technology sharing but in the end you know it was it 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 started to get obvious to me that advocacy and even product advocacy in the sciences only goes so far um and if you really want to create change you've got to join a science organization and you know develop a multi-year approach to say are we going to actually implement these things and will they be better or not
0: If you enjoy listening to these interviews with biotech newsmakers, you'll love reading Timmerman Report, my subscription publication. You can subscribe to Timmerman Report for $149 a year per person. More than 60 pharma companies and universities have gotten group sharing licenses. For details on a group subscription, ask me at luke.timmerman at protonmail.com. And Life Science Cares is a collective effort of the life science industry to end poverty in the greater Boston area. Now working with more than 150 companies, Life Science Cares harnesses the industry's human and financial resources to support service organizations doing the very best work in the areas of basic human survival, education, and economic sustainability. To learn more about how your organization become a member or how you can volunteer, visit www.lifesciencecares. Org. Lastly, are you planning a conference, a team-building event, or a leadership retreat? I've developed a presentation based on my Mount Everest Summit Expedition earlier this year. I'm sharing this experience over the coming year through a select number of company talks. These Everest talks feature gorgeous photos from the world's highest mountain, along with lessons on leadership, teamwork, and and what it takes to overcome adversity to achieve the really big goals in life. Interested? Ask me about an Everest talk at luke.timmerman at protonmail.com. Well, there are so many layers to the problem to, to get to where you want to go. I mean, with biological data, there's there's the lack of reproducibility. There's the publication bias. There's the fact that grants are are not given to people for putting you know, raw data. Nobody puts their raw data out in, you know, unless they really have to. <laughs> right. Um, there's business models like you know pharmaceutical companies have their patents. They're they're not incentivized to put things out in the open. I mean. Um, so you you become aware of this over time. So I was like at this point in the game, you you get all this stuff. Um, and then you meet the crew from SAGE.
1: Right. Well, so, so, yeah. So the other piece of this, though, is that pharma actually supports a fair amount of biological sharing. Right? So like HapMap. A lot of that funding came from pharma. Structural Genomics Consortium. That money's coming from pharma because... The more open the biological space is, the less money they have to spend doing biology. And they recognize that that is a collective. So there's these interesting places where you can intervene, right? But it's not the intervention that you thought it was. And the the real disruption comes from the people who build HapMap, who build the Structural Genomics Consortium.
0: And do they have funding? Do they have incentives to do so?
1: Well, and just and – just, but th- it's because they're in the arena. If you're sitting on the side telling people what to do, right, then everyone's incentives sort of grab them. But if you jump in and actually say, we're going to do the science this way, and we're going to show you that it's better, then that's where you can actually really get there, right? Because we had some good successes. You know, we got uh, – at any rate. Um, but, yeah, so it's, it's what? It's 2009 at this point, right? Obama is in office. There's sort of a – the beginning of a wave of open policy because Obama came in and all these people that I knew from Berkman start working for Obama, uh-huh. Right? Uh, Obama starts putting Creative Commons licenses on his photographs during his first inauguration speech,
0: right? Anybody can take them, use them, spread them widely. And just the, the,
1: the, the semiotics of that, right? Having a president who sort of comes in and gets digital enough to use open licenses, right? And and it's you know, and, and after a really long period of advocacy in the open access movement, you've got this swell, right, of, of, of people doing policy work around access to the scholarly literature, right? And I joined late in that, right? I'm, I'm far from an early OG in that field. But, and you've got a lot of people looking at Wikipedia because Wikipedia became ascendant during those six years, you know? Because I remember when, you know, Wikipedia was was fringy and by 09 it was a model, right?
0: Social media too. Twitter and right. Facebook were taking Just
1: off. getting started. That's yeah. right. That's right. I had just joined, I think, both of them around then. Yeah. And so um, Stephen Friend, I get I get I get a call that Stephen Friend wants to see me. And I of course knew who he was because all of my investors back in the startup was like, why can't you make as much money as Stephen Friend did? And I'd be like, because he's an MD PhD who was one of the first people to clone a cancer gene. Right? <laughs> he's actually a scientist. Right? And uh, and So I knew who he was, and I was kind of intimidated. And he just so I call him back, and I say, "Here's where my office is." And he walks in. And
0: now, for those who don't know, Stephen Fred had started a company called Rosetta Informatics uh, here in Seattle, actually, uh, that uh, that captured gene expression data, had some bioinformatics going on, uh, sold this company to Merck in 2001, I believe, for like 600 million dollars. So very successful entrepreneur. He went on to stay at Merck and ran their cancer research group there for a number of years, but then he got the itch to to kind of branch outside the walls of Merck.
1: Right. And, and I, don't, I won't speak for Steven, right? But uh, one of the things that, that he was dealing with was the, the problem of biological complexity. And so I think one of the reasons why we keep thinking that a new technology or a new approach is going to save us is that we keep getting defeated by biological complexity and we want the new tech to be the savior or the, or the open approach or whatever to be the savior. And so Stephen had been building these big data sets of what he called global coherent data, which is where you had the sequence of the organism, you had some clinical data about the organism, you had the outcome of the organism. And if you put those things together and used sort of early ML and AI, you could start to get much closer to causality in biology.
0: Genotype through phenotype. It's the same story. Right? Integrate all these, these records that don't necessarily exist in the same place, put it together to tell a more coherent story. That's right. But <laughs> one of the things we learned is that the, the underlying data, the genes, are not deterministic. Uh, biology is more complicated than we originally thought, as you said. Right. And context
1: matters, right? Context matters. The context the organism is in is matters. matters a lot, right? So... So he had made um, a, a pitch to Merck to sort of build a Wikipedia of this sort of global coherent data and and, and share it. And so we actually, I think, we still have that presentation. It used to be on our website. It probably fell off when we built our new one, but uh, we've got to get, make that available. We actually have the presentation he gave, and, he, and it was on our, It used to be on our website. And, and Merck's reaction was like, you know, pass, right? You know, we're not going to do that. But uh, but what they allowed him to do was to take the Rosetta unit out, a chunk of the Rosetta unit out of Merck and spin it back into a nonprofit whose mission was to create this Wikipedia of global coherent data and make it openly available. Um, and so, you know, he had gotten wind of my name as someone who knew how to do weird sharing things, walks into my office, we spend what's supposed to be a half an hour turns into two hours, and we just connected we clicked. Um, a week later, I was out here in Seattle meeting Eric Schott, who is his co-founder at Rosetta, um, getting my tires kicked by their team to see if they wanted me involved. And uh, I joined the board uh, before it was even named, I joined the board of directors. And um, you know for a couple, and, and so that was really the story for a couple of years. I served as a director. I came out here maybe quarterly. I spent a lot of time on the phone with Stephen. Um, and then um, the more I saw of it, the more I realized that that if I wanted to actually see whether or not what I was saying was true, I needed to join a science organization. Here was a science organization that that wanted to work with me.
0: What what were you trying to find out was true? Does the sort of
1: collaborative data sharing, right? Does the kind of does that actually make science better, right? And what does better mean? Does better mean faster? Does better mean more? You know, to what degree of more? You know, are we talking about orders of magnitude accelerations? Are we talking about orders of magnitude increases in the number of of discoveries you can make? Um, Going back to Ostrom and sort of this ecosystem is, you know, what's the carrying capacity of data, right? We know the carrying capacity of a field, right? If you grow wheat in the field one year, you can grow wheat in it the next year. But if you grow in it every year, you, you exhaust the field. Right? Yeah. Uh, is data like that or is data more like a tree where if you burn the tree, what you're left with is charcoal? And, and you can still burn charcoal, but not a, you don't get as much heat as you did out of the tree, right? You know, Or is it like fruit and it's just an evergreen? Like right? Nobody knew this. Everyone has ideas, but nobody knew it.
0: Well, and having covered the story of Sage's founding, I'm dating myself here. I did did talk with Stephen and Eric. (laughs) I remember.
1: That's when we first met. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. And I remember him being uh, enamored with the way physicists shared their data uh, in a more continuous, uh, centralized repository sort of way. Why can't biology uh, do something similar, at least in some respects? Mm -hmm. I mean, he... Having come from Merck, he understood the need to have intellectual property around your composition of matter, say. Um, But there were certain things that weren't appropriate to share. Mm -hmm. But um, a lot of things were and just weren't being shared because of, you know, this is the way we've always done it, cultural inertia, or people just not really thinking it through in a a long-term way. But um, he he also... um, Fell for this um, presentation. I believe it was from Jim Gray at Microsoft Research. What he called the fourth paradigm—that's right—a new way of that science could be done. That wasn't going to start with a hypothesis. That would well, why don't basically there would be continuous data capture and analysis, and it would throw off all kinds of new hypotheses, mm-hmm. right? But why don't you explain that that thinking?
1: Yeah, so Jim um, Jim was a fascinating guy. I actually was – he disappeared at sea right after he gave that talk. Like two weeks after that, he, he sailed off through the San Francisco gate uh, for a day trip. He was a very experienced sailor, and he never came back. And I was supposed to meet him like a, like a month later to try to see if I could get him on my advisory board at right. Science Commons. But he, was, he really influenced me because he – And as Steven as well, because he sort of saw the future of where cloud was going. And so I'd been this big semantic web guy, you know, and then cloud pops in and makes statistics at scale workable in a way they hadn't been. Um, It also made graph computing uh, possible at scale in a way that it hadn't been. And and so Jim was able to look at that, those earliest days of it, and this is, you know, 08 maybe, and see that you were going to go to a world where the data was too big to download. Right? Which you wouldn't which,
0: have it on your hard drive.
1: Which messes with open, right? Because open open data depends on the concept that people are gonna download it, right? But it wasn't gonna be on a hard drive, it was gonna be too big, right? Again, you know, 80 terabytes of BAM files, you know, is a lot of money for the cloud provider to pay the cloud to pay for the transfer of. So that the code was gonna have to go to the data, right? Jim saw both of those elements, right? He saw the, the beginning, that that data would be so big that you would put your code into the data to tell you what was the possibility space. You know, what are the hypotheses that are available to you given the data? Um, you know, he talked about, you know, don't build a complex data system this way by building a complex data system. Go from working query to working query. Start with 20 queries that have to compile, and then do 20 more that don't break the previous 20. And if you do that, you're going to wind up with a data network in the cloud that, that, that is successful. But if you start by saying, let's build a data network, you'll fail, right? It was brilliant, really. Um, and, and so Sage, in a lot of ways, built towards that from the beginning. So like our technology has been built towards the cloud, right, from a very early day. Um, our science has built towards this idea of bringing the code to the data from a very early day. And, um, and in many ways, that original version of a Wikipedia has evolved much closer from, to, to Jim Gray's vision than Jimmy Wales's vision. Right? So Jimmy Wales founded Wikipedia, but we've wound up at something that looks way more like Jim Gray than Jimmy Wales. How so? So I mean, we, we you know, like, let's take we run these challenges where the data, you know you have 750,000 medical images. They weren't consented for sharing. We can't make them downloadable legally because of privacy reasons. Nor could we afford to make them downloadable because we, as the people who pay Amazon for our cloud fees, would have to pay for the transfer costs. Or we'd have to charge the user. And so, you know, what user is going to put up 10 grand to download the database? And it would take days, right? It's, it's a different paradigm. So to run, a, to run a computational interpretation challenge, for example, we've got to basically do G- what Jim Gray said more than 10 years ago and let people bring their code to the data keep it in a container on on the web, um, and and give them a set of queries that they can run in the data. I mean, it's exactly what Jim laid out all those years ago. And and here we are in 2018, and it's the state of the art of what we do.
0: It is, but it still runs into some cultural headwinds. Uh, I I think particularly in Silicon Valley engineering culture, this reminds me, when you and I just a couple weeks ago were at the Biden Cancer Summit uh, you made a remark at a data sharing breakout session where I was at about how you can't just take one big data set and merge it together with another big data set and magically think cures will come out Be- because big data just doesn't work that way here in biology. It has to, it has to align properly. I mean, but that, that mindset you find quite prevalent. I, I've I've seen this myself many times that in tech audiences where well all we need is more data, more and more data will will give us the answer and it's just not. You you had the uh, an example of the Merck database on gene expression, which is a huge and rich set of data that Sage was founded with, uh, but it hasn't been used. Um, right, and it has it doesn't neatly uh, merge. I would imagine with other data sets that are considered relevant by biologists today. Right, so it's it's there, but nobody's using it.
1: Yeah, and that's 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 an issue, right? The and it's it's hard because it, there is there is a world in which if you merged a bunch of data together, it would be super useful to lots of people. Um, but the reality right now is there are not that many scientists capable of interrogating big databases using machine learning. Um, and so, for some of those people, like for a guy like Atul Butte, who's you know, a brilliant scientist, and I've known him for a long time, right, a tool can take a bunch of public databases and mash them together and get insights out of them. I don't know if he can get cures out of them, but he can get good insights out of them, meaningful insights, patient meaningful insights. But there's not that many a tools right now. And so one part of the problem is we need more a tools. We need to teach scientists to be more like that, to, to think more like Jim Gray would say, to go, you know, send your code to the data and have it kick out hypotheses. But a big part of this is that we can, we can generate a much larger pool of scientists by the way that we generate the data. And so if we generate data towards a construct of hypothesis exploratory research instead of hypothesis-driven research, which is, you know, I think A causes B, is I would say is hypothesis-driven research, and I only generate data to see if that's a true hypothesis. We can generate these big databases that let, that let you say, show me all the potential relationships between A and B, right? But if we don't generate towards that construct— it's going to be really hard for the scientists to come in and do that. We're going to reduce the number of people who can make that query. And then there are these other things that normal scientists do, like we, which are sort of more low-hanging fruit, which would be things like meta-analysis. I've got a small sample size because i got a small grant, but I have a bunch of sequence data, a bunch of tumor sequence data. If I can get other tumor sequence data that was generated the same way from other places, I can drastically increase my sample size. That's doable, right? But it's, it's engineering these shared data resources toward the scientific construct instead of doing it as this abstract munging and hoping for success.
0: Yeah. I think the phrase you used is the, the field of dreams. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, that doesn't work. It doesn't work very well. And for I, those who are unfamiliar, this is a pop culture reference to the movie. Again, film. an old one. <laughs> We're dating ourselves. But if you build it, they will come and, and it will be magical.
1: Right, and 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 this is where, and again, in the background of all of this is a, you know, the the open access to the literature movement having an enormous amount of policy success and beginning to connect open data to it. That's all happening through the, you know, the early parts of this decade in the twenty teens. Is a growing movement um, to push the Obama administration to open up scholarly literature and taxpayer funded data. And so what you have now is you, you, we do have a, a lot of policy now that sort of says if you've got taxpayer money, you have to file a data sharing plan. Um, and you have an enormous amount of success around, you know, true open data, you know, municipal open data, arrests, water, air, uh, legislative works, right? And, and then there's, the, but there's this sort of divergence between open data like that that's useful as it is, right, because it's connected to GPS or the census it's easy to integrate. There's lots of users. It's small. You can download it, and then this gigantic life sciences data that is endlessly complex requires lots of tacit knowledge to use. Has all of these privacy and uh, intellectual property constraints that touch on it, and um, and so we have these the same policy applying to both, and so the, the the field of dreams problem in the life sciences is that that we're not training cadres of scientists to use this data, nor are we building these data, shared data resources toward a scientific construct. And that is just limiting their utility, right? Because your average scientist is worried about her R01 grant from NIH, right? And R01 is the traditional sort of early career investigator grant. And if you get one and you succeed, you get a good shot at tenure. If you get one and fail, you don't, right? And so... I'm worried if I'm, if I'm that woman running the lab, I'm worried about nailing my RO1. So the question is, what can that shared data do to help my RO1? Not, I'm going to go burn six months exploring that public database and not work on my RO1. And so you're back to this incentive mismatch. And it's not an IP mismatch or an anti-sharing mismatch. It's, I've got to nail that grant to the wall. And so going and exploring and doing Jim Gray stuff in that data takes me away from this very reductionist grant that I got funded.
0: Right. And then you've got to get your publication. That's right. And you get your publication by – not by putting your findings out there before publication. <laughs> you, right. don't, you don't give away your scoops. Right.
1: And, and, and then after you publish, right, then the policy kicks in and says now you need to share the data from that. But, you know, at that point, you know, the publication often comes out after the postdoc who worked on it has left the lab – And nobody there really understands the data well enough to mark it up, right? To make that tacit knowledge explicit knowledge so that, you know, Luke can come in from the outside and use that data effectively because it hasn't been shared towards a scientific construct.
0: But you guys, one thing that you said that I think resonated there at the Biden Cancer Summit was starting with the query, like sort of like basic customer relations, really. What do the scientists want to know? And can we... It, it build a set of data can we compile it somehow and put it out there in a way that's relevant and accessible for their scientific questions of the moment
1: right so, so yes yeah, so this is this is Jim gray 101 right like what are the classes of queries right so so Jim would you know Jim's sort of theory is give me a specific query but I think the lesson that we take away from it is what's what's the class of query right because then you can say I'm going to go get classes of data for that and I can keep adding data for that. And so, you know, one class of queries is meta-analysis. Use other people's data to increase the sample size available and the power of my of the analysis for my data. And that aligns with the incentive of you know getting my R01 and, and, and succeeding. You know another one is triangulating, right? So if I've got a hypothesis that's coming from genome space about right the relationship of these specific you know variations to health. Well if i can find traces of that in ehr space it's way more likely to be true than if it's only present in one of the two data streams and so those are the kinds of classes of queries that you can build towards and then you can say you know we want to keep people depositing data of these classes into these systems and then they get better and better at serving up meta analysis and triangulation services and suddenly people are using shared data resources and it's not a field of dreams anymore it's you've got a job to do in your lab, but these data resources out here help you do that job. And then the policy says, share your data into those resources, and suddenly we have something that's actually all
0: coherent. Well, and it sounds like you're you're making something here, ideally, that will get us to go from this phase of just generating data and dumping data into databases, layering in some context, Working your way up the tree from you know data to information to knowledge to wisdom, as I think right. you, you said earlier, and we, we that, that's a long hard road. We're, we're I think we're still very much kind of low on the ladder. Well, this is really about the data to information transform, right?
1: Yeah. And and to be I want to also be clear that this is when I'm talking about this, I'm talking about reusing data that was generated for traditional science. Because that's, that's where there's a field of dreams problem, in my opinion, is the idea that that Luke makes data in Luke's lab for Luke's purposes and that by sharing it, like magic happens, right? And that's where I think you know, sh- sharing towards that query-driven science construct is the answer, not a field of dreams. It's very different to run a project like a Cancer Genome Atlas, right? Or the Accelerating Medicines Partnerships or the All of Us Research Program, right? And Disclosure. We're involved in all of those, so I have a bias in favor of them, obviously. But that's where you're built. You're literally generating the data for other people to analyze.
0: All of us research, by the way, seeks to sequence one million genomes. NIH-funded program, and it's supposed to be super duper diverse, like right.
1: full picture of America. That's right, and and full EHRs. And, you know, and a physical exam, and blood, and urine, and wearables, and connecting in social determinants and environmental data. I mean, it's this is going to be the Framingham cohort for the 21st century, right? Yeah. And so that's an endlessly useful giant database, but it's going to be useful because it's built for other people to analyze. Those of us building it are not going to be the people who are the primary users of it. And so that's where I think you can have you can have a lot of success with a more field of dreamsy approach because you're not just building it and then they come like you know, in field of dreams right going back to the movie they build a, a baseball field in a cornfield and there's no seats right and so it's kind of it's not particularly likely that people will show up and go to the games at the cornfield right but you know if you got a baseball team and a stadium with beer and hot dogs and you know childcare and all you know all of the <laughs> modern things at a baseball game people will come right and so there's a big difference between those two approaches. And so we need to have an understanding of data sharing that's nuanced enough to say, well, are we going to be reusing data generated in the course of regular science? And what's the process to make that shareable and useful? Versus we're going to generate public atlases and maps and resources specifically to let other people do work. And both of those approaches can work. The key is to not
0: mix them up. You started by saying, "I like to make it easy to share things." Yeah, um, making
1: things easy is hard.
0: <laughs> and I think uh, I think we've made that pretty clear. Your, your <laughs> co uh, co leader on that session at the Biden Cancer Summit, Anna Barker from Arizona State, I think she had a great comment. And I'll quote her. She said that data is entropy until it has context, and we want to create information, but we can't do it without context. And we're falling way behind in medicine. And I think uh, the things that you're talking about here are about providing that context, help us move a little further up that ladder toward understanding what, what all this complex biological data actually means.
1: And, and there's, some, there's some really interesting things emerging now about how that works, right? That, like, so take uh, Accelerating Medicines Partnership, which is uh, NIH is working with pharma, right? So it's like half and half funding-wise to look at complex spaces that where, where drugs have been hard to get at, right? So we're involved in the Alzheimer's disease AMP, right? So AMP-AD. And the idea was we're going to fund these labs. They're going to work together. They're going to collaborate. They're going to each take a radically different approach to target discovery in Alzheimer's. And, um, and they're going to share data with each other, and they're going to share data with pharma and the NIH. And, um, and that's going to lead to these sort of second-order knowledge products that, that pop out of the open system. And what you see is that um, that does happen, but in many ways it happens because they're all working on the same tech platform with the same steward, which is Sage, right? So the labs don't wind up making the second-order knowledge product. Sage winds up making the second-order knowledge product. So we have this search engine called Agora that sits on top of AMP AD, which shows you all of the community evidence for each of the targets that came out of the work, right? Right. Which of those targets have been voted on by the community of scientists as being most likely to be good or bad, right? It's basically a community-ranked wall of targets for Alzheimer's disease with all the evidence and networks around it that you can go in and just search and immediately see if at your fingertips all the stuff that's available. But it didn't emerge organically. It was something that we had to build as the platform steward. And that's a really fascinating thing because now you can actually fund lead discovery against those targets, Right, you start to so we've made that jump, but it didn't happen organically. It had it happened because those labs worked in a common technical framework, with a common steward, and it was open enough that we could build this 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 interface to it. Because what people really wanted was not the raw data; they wanted the interface to it.
0: Well, and somebody needs to build it, and not just have standards, but um, adhere to the standards, yeah. maintain it. Yeah, yeah, it's not super glamorous. Uh, it, it, most days, I would imagine.
1: Right. Well, and 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 think about it. Another element. This is why governance is so interesting to me. Is you know, if you make it open data, then the internet is kind of the governor, right? Uh, as long as the file is on the internet, it's available and open, and the governance is maintained. And so there's this concept that lots of copies keep stuff safe, right? But if you've got data in a cloud. And the company or the nonprofit that runs the cloud goes bankrupt and turns off the servers, it's gone, right? And so it creates this unique importance to think about corporate governance as a a really important element of the whole sharing ecosystem. And that's endlessly interesting to me because, you know, we act as this weird mix of platform technology provider because we run, you know, cloud platforms built on Amazon. We're in Seattle, Right. Uh, we run a collaboration platform. We run a mobile applications platform. We run a challenge platform. Um, you know, but if we were to disappear, right, a lot of things would go dark, right? So, what's what's our corporate obligation as a nonprofit? What's our governance process to do that? Um, you know, we've got uh, we're actually you know, Christine Suver, who leads the team here in Seattle, is on her way to Paris today, right, to give a paper on on you know when you start to do this kind of 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 data sharing, Um, what are the obligations on the organization from a governance perspective?
0: Yeah, this is a a forward looking question about, really, I mean, we ought to be asking about the whole internet. Like, gee, I mean, if if Google got acquired by somebody that um, wasn't necessarily the same guys that you've trusted these last 20 years, what would that mean?
1: (laughs) And you see it in scholarly communication, right? There's all sorts of small, quasi-open... Uh, service providers in, you know, semantic search of the literature or bookmarking or, you know, uh, uh, social networking, and they're getting bought, right? Elsevier, who is a very smart company, is out there acquiring Mendeley and acquiring other service companies. And so the business model of the organization is really important, right? So, you know, we may run technology platforms. We may also act as a steward. We may also provide scientific consulting services, we might do all three or just one of the three at any given moment. But because we're a nonprofit, we can't be acquired. We have no investors that can force us to be acquired. And so there's another org called Impact Story. They're just up the road right in Vancouver. I was on their board for a long time. And they make this, you know, really cool tool called Unpaywall, which is a browser plugin that when you run across a paywalled article, you right click and it finds you the open version and just gives it to you, right? Elsevier had to do a deal with them because they couldn't buy them. Uh huh. Right. So, so there's uh, that's what I'm fascinated by is the, the the role of acting like a company, in the sense of doing things companies do, like providing technology platforms and providing consulting services, but then layering onto that, right, stewardship and governance, and having a business model that makes it really hard to be captured. Right? That's, a, that's part of what I think makes a stable sharing ecosystem, is it may be endlessly complex to us at Sage, and when I talk about it, it makes it endlessly complex, but I can sort of provide a menu and say, like, do you want to make the data downloadable? That's classic open, right? Do you want to make it downloadable but with a data use agreement because there's privacy constraints or consent constraints? We can make that a relatively clean process. Do you want to put it into a container and only allow models to do that? We can offer you that, Right. And um, and we're not going to surveil you. We're not going to snoop at your data because we don't get we don't need to build models and compete with you. Um, and and we're able to to do enough of that to be stable enough that we can sort of you know rather than proprietize a layer, we can publicize a layer of the research stack.
0: The average um, user doesn't want to deal with any of this stuff going on behind the scenes. Absolutely not. They, they want it to be as frictionless to use the Silicon Valley term as possible. That's your job. To try That's to right. make it easy. Like That's you right. said at the very beginning. Um, and, and that will be the test, like in terms of number of users, number of uh, how, how, how much they're using it. Um, that'll, that'll be your measurement o- over time. But but last thing, John, before I know we have to wrap up pretty quick. We haven't even talked about artificial intelligence, machine <laughs> learning. I mean, do you think that there's a point in time when that will rise to the fore and become a lot more useful for analyzing a lot of, of these shared data sets? I do. I mean... There's just
1: too much for hypothesis-driven analysis of this. And, um, and and what ML and AI are really good at is generating patterns, right? And th- those patterns mapped to the experience of an expert biologist are going to be a very powerful combination, right? And so I, I do think that that's going to be in the same way that statistics are standard, right? MLA, just statistics on steroids, right? And so I, I think that it's inevitable that, that you're going to have, you know, classes of scientists coming up who just treat these tools as baseline tools. Um, but because it takes five years to get your PhD and another five years to do your postdoc, there's a lag in the sciences compared to the non-sciences of how fast tools get picked up. And one of the reasons I'm excited about being involved in TCGA, AMP, all of us is that they represent, I think, the the seed nodes of an open or a shared data network for ML and AI in the sciences. Um, especially all of us, because because it's going to be diverse. Um, you know, we've enrolled you know, over sixty thousand already. We've got more than hundred thousand. I think it's more than hundred thousand consented. You know, and and we're looking at you know in the you know, the vast majority of those come from populations underrepresented in biomedical research. And so these are systems that begin to create both the ability to do large scale AI in in a population but to do it on a diverse population so that hopefully we prevent some of the preventable failures of of biased algorithms that we see from you know Amazon's first delivery algorithms didn't deliver to Roxbury in Boston. Right. And they didn't look at race, they looked at economics, but economics and race are very tied, right? And so 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 I think that's where this goes and that's why we spend a lot of time working in those early spaces is if if you can make those shareable enough, open enough, governed well enough, but also diverse enough, right, we can maybe head off some of the problems that we have in culture with AI
0: uh, at the pass in the sciences. If you put in bad or incomplete data, for starters, you're going to bake in some very serious problems. That's for, right. That, that are going to be very hard to undo. That's right, because the algorithm the algorithms get trained and
1: learn on the first sets of data that they see. And it's much harder to get them to unlearn those patterns than it is to get them to learn the right patterns from the beginning.
0: You think we're going to see this fourth paradigm, this continuous learning, Uh, you know? We're in our mid-40s. Is this going to happen in our lifetime? I think so. Uh, I mean, I actually mean,
1: you know, I I wrote a piece in the Fourth Paradigm book, actually, where I I agreed with Jim on this whole concept of hypothesis-driven research, but when people think about paradigms, they often think about Kuhn, right? Structure of Scientific Revolution, where the the paradigm sweeps away the old one. And so, for reference, the other three paradigms I think were observation, theory, and simulation, right? And then you have, you know, hypothesis uh, or data-driven was the fourth one. And I think data-driven doesn't sweep away observation, theory, and simulation. I think it 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 weaves around all of them. And and so you feed observations into it, and theories make it better, and simulations are how you test it. And so. So I think we're already living in the fourth paradigm. It's just unevenly distributed. And and the real task of the next decade is to make it fair, right? Both in the data sense of, you know, fair, but also in the social justice sense of fair. Um, and to make it accessible enough that more scientists use it and that more people become scientists. In the same way that, you know, I became a web developer without being a technologist. You know, I think I think patients ought to be able to ask questions and go from query to query, not just researchers. And so... That's to me the task is. Right now, we're building a system for a very elite set of users, and if we can do it right, and we can vastly
0: democratize who those users are. Well, John, we've talked about a lot of stuff here. Um, next time we talk, let's talk about uh, how to fix the internet in, ge- <laughs> in general. <laughs> I can get you somebody else for that. Thank you. Thanks, for, thanks very much, John. Thanks for being on the show. My the pleasure. long run. Thanks for listening to the long run a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the producer and editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. And thanks for listening. If you're interested in sponsoring the show and getting your name in front of biotech thought leaders, send me an email at luke.timmerman at protonmail.com. See you next episode.